Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and I am joined by my regular co-host, Dara Lynn. Hello. And by Vox senior correspondent, Andrew Prokop. Hello. We wanted to have Andrew on, A, because it's about the eighth anniversary of all three of us working at Vox for the first time, and I'm nostalgic. I appreciate being included in this, as opposed to certain other people who started around that time who shall remain nameless, who did not grant me a happy vox anniversary because I was referred to as the traitor Daryland. <laughs> Look, when once a voxer, always a voxer. We'll, we'll keep you and, and claim our achievements for our own. But we also wanted to have Andrew on because 2022 is a redistricting year, uh, and states are all forced to redraw their congressional and state legislative maps, uh, given the most recent census. And that could have major ramifications uh, for control of the House this fall. And Andrew's been covering the ups and downs of, of redistricting as it goes state by state. So, Andrew, do you have like a big macro takeaway of, of how the process has gone so far this year? Is there a party that's that's obviously won redistricting the way that Republicans kind of won in 2010? Or, or is it more complicated than that? So I've been working on a big overview of what uh, has happened with the congressional map specifically. So leaving state legislatures aside for now. And my big takeaway so far is that if you are measuring by partisan lean or partisan bias, the national map looks like it's shaping up to be pretty fair. That is, the districts seem pretty reflective of the national partisan vote. And um one important note here is that there are a few key states left that have not finished, uh, most notably Florida and Ohio. So we don't actually have a fully final map yet. And depending on how those go in the end, the map could have a narrow Republican lean, a narrow Democratic lean, or it could be uh, hardly any bias at all. But any lean would, would be a narrow one. There was this fear before redistricting started up that Republicans had power in enough states that they would be able to gerrymander the House so as to make it basically impossible for Democrats to win back control, or at least they, they would need a tremendously large win to be able to do so. And that hasn't happened. So, I mean, to be extremely obvious about all this, because the congressional map is not, in fact, determined by Congress, but is instead determined by state legislatures. When when we're looking at something that is in the aggregate relatively fair, we're saying that like 50 different, well, at least 50 different procedures ended up in this, you know, relatively fair aggregate. Does that actually break down at the like in each state things are relatively fair? Or is this just a matter of some states that are extremely blue gerrymandered counterbalanced other states that are extremely red gerrymandered? Yeah, that's basically what happened. So the other takeaway from the map, first of all, is that there are more safe seats this time around and there are fewer really close districts that could conceivably swing either way in, in a close election. And that exact count depends on how you define swing districts exactly. But if you if you look at the 2020 presidential vote as the baseline and look at, you know, those districts where Biden's margin was up to five points better than his national margin and the same on Trump's side, there were around 40 of those districts uh, in 2020. But that number is going to drop to about 30 
districts in 2022. So, you know, we're losing some swing districts and, and there are going to be more safe seats or at least safer seats this time around. And, and the battle for the House will really be decided in a, in a pretty limited group of about 30 districts, as well as in the relative handful of other districts that are currently mismatched. Uh, districts Biden won with uh, Republican representatives, incumbents, and Trump districts with Democratic incumbents. Now, going state by state, I think my shorthand version of what really mattered here is that Republicans did gerrymander to a, a significant extent in several states, but they had actually already gerrymandered, you know, in the previous decade in many of these states. So they didn't have as much room to gain. Like there's an art to gerrymandering and there's kind of an, um, you know, you're, you're limited with with the tools that are available to you and exactly what you can do. And uh, another thing Republicans had to deal with is that demographics voting patterns changed over the past decades. So they had to kind of rework and, and shore up their existing gerrymanders. They were playing a bit of defense. They did pick up, it seems, uh, um, certain seats in Florida, though Florida's not finalized yet, they'll, they'll almost surely pick up some. Georgia, Tennessee, um, Texas, they've, they've basically wiped out swing districts almost entirely, uh, in, in, but uh, they didn't actually pick up too many seats themselves as compared to the status quo. But Republicans ended up having some big setbacks from state courts in Ohio and North Carolina. Those were two of their biggest opportunities to gerrymander, but the state Supreme Courts swatted down those maps. And in North Carolina, it's been totally blocked. In Ohio, they're still in the in the midst of a back and forth. And we don't know how it will end up. But North Carolina's map is a net improvement for Democrats. So then you go over to the state's Democrats' control. And the big headline events were big Democratic gerrymanders in New York and Illinois. And they wiped out four Republican seats in each of those states or four Republican-leaning districts. And they picked up three Democratic seats. Uh, both states are actually losing a seat due to population declines. So, you know, knock out four Republicans, gain three Democrats. There were also Democratic gerrymanders in Nevada, New Mexico, and uh, redistricting gains in Oregon as well. And then apart from that, you have uh, the states where redistricting is handled by commissions, and that was kind of a, a split. Uh, the maps helped Democrats in California a bit, in Michigan, uh, but they helped Republicans a bit in Arizona and Colorado. So that was a bit of a wash. But, but the basic story is that reforms may have helped a little bit for Democrats. Friendly Supreme Court justices in certain states helped a bit. But the real reason Democrats managed to perform better than expected is that they did more gerrymandering themselves, more extreme gerrymandering in the big blue states of New York and Illinois specifically. And I do want to mention, though, that there are a few caveats here. Uh, there have been some um, belief that some of the Democratic gerrymanders may have overextended their voting power in Illinois, Nevada, maybe even New Mexico. They um, might be in danger of losing some seats in, in a big wave year because they've spread their their voters too thin and they, they have narrow majorities in certain districts rather than really solid ones. Then there's also um, Republicans might have another bite at the apple or they might try to take one uh, next year or next cycle in North Carolina and Ohio because there might be changes to the Supreme Courts there that could allow them to gerrymander the way they really want. So, yeah, just to, to explain the dynamic you're talking about there, because I think it's important, but but a little complicated. So, like, generally what you want to do when you're gerrymandering, say you're in a state that's like 55-45 Republican um, or 55-45 Democratic, um, that you want to make as many 55-45 districts as you can, um, since that way, even though you have only a slight lead, you would, like, sweep the map. And this is a kind of not with that exact vote differential what happens in Massachusetts, where – there are many Republicans in Massachusetts, but none of them are in Congress um, because they've sort of divided up this way. But if the 55-45 thing is too close and there's a big swing, 
then all those seats could conceivably go to the other party because the very fact you were able to, to gerrymander like that meant that you weren't making really safe districts. Am I understanding this right? Yeah, you want your party to win comfortably but not overwhelmingly in as many districts as possible. But sometimes there is a trade-off between maximizing the number of districts that lean toward your party versus the number of districts that are safe for your party because you have a limited number of voters and you're drawing the lines to try to maximize their voting power. But, you know, in Nevada, Nevada has four congressional districts and Democrats have drawn the line so that there's one safe Republican district and then there are three districts that are kind of lean Democratic. So some Republicans think, hey, we could actually win all four of these seats if, if if it is a wave year for Republicans because they only have narrow Democratic majorities. Like a truly expert gerrymander would essentially determine the outcome in advance and there wouldn't be any risk of that sort of uh, being overwhelmed by a wave. But that's not always possible uh, given um, how the makeup of some of these states, their demographics, where the populations are distributed, the, the need to um, make districts contiguous and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, obviously, we're talking about cases where state legislatures decided not to eliminate swing districts. Like, you know, we're not we're not talking about places where it's like a safe Democratic seat that just because of its demographics could turn safe Republican, but places in which like a swingier seat was preferred to a safer one because it meant, you know, just raw math. But like after a, a you know decade or even 15 year period where like we've seen a lot of congressional elections that could qualify as wave elections on one side or the other given the like increased nationalization of congressional politics and all that jazz are folks who are kind of tallying up the winners and losers on this doing so with the thinking that you know, this might have been a safe map 20 years ago, but now in the midst of what could be a voter realignment, especially in like New Mexico, where it would have looked, you know, four years ago, like it was trending solidly blue. And some of the 2020 election results might have thrown that a little bit into question, like that you need to kind of wave proof, you need to build stronger gerrymander levies, if you will, your electoral map. Yeah, I mean, if I, I think in some of these cases, uh, this is also a dynamic going on in Illinois, there is criticism of the gerrymanderers weren't weren't good enough, basically, or, or weren't like, – like they could have done it, um, these critics think, but but they just weren't skillful enough in drawing the maps and so they've left themselves exposed uh, or perhaps – Perhaps it wasn't a lack of skill. Perhaps they are hemmed in by their own political demands, like certain members of Congress have interests in the lines being drawn a certain way. They live in a certain place. They they don't want to be cut out of their district. They want certain populations in their district, and, and those interests go beyond simple, you know, which party gets more seats across the state. But in others, it, it just may not really be possible to draw a truly safe uh, gerrymander if, you know, the state is just 55-45 um, or if it's a, a truly swing state. So you were just talking about New Mexico, and that is a state where um, Democrats have tried to get rid of the one safe Republican district and have made uh, three Democratic-leaning districts um, instead, but they might not have made them Democratic-leaning enough. I do think that there is a mentality that Okay, if there is a wave election and it's really big, then Democrats are losing the House anyway. So it's like it's not like the true districts that determine control of the House will be the ones that are close to the national median. You know, it's it like if if Democrats are losing the national popular vote by seven points, they're going to lose the House. And so they're going to lose these seats that are, you know, six points to the left of the national median if, if, if the margin swings by seven points. So there's only so much you can do about that if the wave is so big. But I think the, the idea is that gerrymandering is likely, you know, on the national scale to be truly decisive if the election is really close. And that's where you want, you want an edge if it's a, a – a 51-49 election, if it's a 50-50 election, that's where you're, you're trying to sort of optimize your maps for that scenario. And, you know, it's, again, it's not final, but as I look at this data and, and try to look at where the leanings of how these districts voted for Biden or Trump, how would they perform if if the national popular vote, you know, was a 
exact tie, if it swung to the right by three points or whatever. And what I found so far is that it generally seems to reflect the national popular vote pretty well. Like if it's a tied election, it'll be pretty close to a tied house. So so that is 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 perhaps a win for um, you know partisan responsiveness in the overall map, even if getting there was pretty ugly and like under the hood, there is a whole lot of non-competitive uh, districts and and races going on. So going into this whole cycle, there was a, a fair amount of anxiety that I saw among sort of harder nosed Democrats that they were going to be screwed by a form of unilateral disarmament. Like we talked a little bit about the the independent commissions, but if you look at what states, have given this power to sort of apolitical, allegedly, commissions to, to draw maps as opposed to just sending it to the legislature. It's like California, New Jersey, Virginia, Washington. Like, there are some purple states, but it's a lot of blue states. And I would have anticipated just sort of before the fact that a lot of blue states doing that and a bunch of red states not doing that would sort of translate into a kind of systematic edge uh, for Republicans because they're the ones who are still in the game. Why hasn't that been the dynamic? Why were Democrats able to sort of overcome that? It depends on the commission, first of all. In Colorado, things did move more uh, pro-Republican than than it would have if there was not a commission, if the Democrats did have the ability to gerrymander Colorado. Colorado had seven congressional districts and they had – four Democrats and three Republicans. Now they're getting one new seat due to population growth. That new seat was made by the commission as a swing seat that narrowly leans Republican. So, you know, if Democrats were drawing the lines, they probably would have made it a, a, a lean Democratic seat at least, if if not a safe Democratic seat, given themselves a 5-3 advantage. But now it's kind of a, a 4-4 or 4-3-1, however you want to count it. But if you look at California and Michigan, those are those are the states where the maps have turned out to be pretty pro-democratic and and it's interesting in California there's there's a lot of discussion about how the maps end up being uh, so pro-democratic there because they're not supposed to consider this is an independent commission drawing the lines in California, they're not supposed to consider incumbent politicians' interests or party voting totals or anything like that. They're just supposed to kind of figure out where the district should go and, and what would be a good representing communities and so on. And, you know, about 40 percent of, of Californians voted for Republicans. But the way the districts were drawn this time around and also in the previous redistricting in 2010, you'll get about 75 to 80 percent of the districts leaning Democratic. And so that is a pretty big gap. I think if this happened in a Republican state, uh, Democrats would definitely say, oh, my God, this is a, <laughs> a horrible, horrific gerrymander. But th- they find sort of ways to – excuse it in California. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's not clear that those excuses are wrong. It's it's Geography is a difficult um, constraint on drawing a lot of these maps. Often it works to Republicans' advantage in certain swing states because of the, the now very well-known fact that Democratic voters tend to concentrate in cities and Republican voters tend to be more dispersed. And so basically when you're drawing districts, if you're trying to keep cities together, you're going to have a lot of Democratic voters packed into those cities, and that will dilute the strength of the Democratic voting power across the state. That's why you see, you know, Minnesota is a state where Democrats have won the presidential election for many years, but there's going to be four lean Republican districts and three lean Democratic districts and and one kind of swing district because it's just the geography of Minnesota is such that it's it's difficult to draw maps that really advantage Democrats, even more so in Wisconsin, where that is, you know, Biden won it by 0.6 percentage points in 2020, but you're going to have six Trump districts and two Biden districts from this map. Uh, it would have been possible if Democrats had the power to draw the lines in Wisconsin, which they didn't, to get that a little closer. But the geography of Wisconsin is just very difficult for Democrats to, if they have to keep in mind drawing contiguous districts that aren't a little ridiculous, (laughs) that looking, if you're trying to keep communities together, it it is a bit of a challenge to draw a truly fair map in Wisconsin uh, on a partisan basis. 
Yeah, I mean, contiguous geography, like, and we'll be getting into this a little more when we get a little more explicitly meta or normative about it, but, like, someone's vote is going to end up counting less than someone else's vote, right? Like, as unfair as California's map might be toward Republicans in general, the worst case scenario in California is being a, like, Democratic voter in one of the few safe Republican districts, right? Because in theory, your state should be representing your interests. And in practice, your vote's just going to get washed away and you won't even have the benefit of, like, competitive primaries. But, you know, that's, like, baked into the system. And so as ridiculous as gerrymandered shapes can sometimes look in order to get you know, contiguous geography that also manages to aggregate to exactly a safe enough advantage that you're not worried about a bitty wave election, just a big wave election, like, that would look equally ridiculous at most levels of, you know, at, at, at most levels of contiguousness, you would have some people just getting washed out. And so these are just choices that are built into the system that we have. At the same time, it is worth pointing out that, like, Instead of unilateral disarmament, as Dylan was noting, some hard-nosed Democrats were saying, it looks like there was, on the whole, successful, you know, reactive rearmament. And it's worth asking questions about how that fits, you know, normatively as well as politically with a party that has increasingly been explicitly styling itself as the only pro-democracy party among the two major parties <laughs> and like how that sense of itself as, you know, the adults in the room, the technocrats, et cetera, might jive with some of the tactics going on in state houses. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about sort of what standards we should be using for thinking about these maps and, and what makes them fair or unfair. Uh, stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Okay, so we're back. It seems like on a national level, the redistricting situation does not seem that egregious in either direction. But egregiousness is relative and, and hard to define. Um, so when you're writing about this, Andrews, or what are some of the main algorithms or tools or th ways of like looking at how fair a map is that you use? So we've been talking mainly so far about kind of overall partisan responsiveness. If Democrats win a majority of votes in the state, do they get a majority of seats? Uh, if they win about 60% of the votes, do they get, how many seats do they get? And this is not a simple thing to measure all the time. I, I think people have intuitions that, you know, if it's a 50-50 state and one party is winning three quarters of the seats due to how the lines are drawn and not and they're not winning the most votes in the state, then that's a big problem. But if you get further away from that kind of like platonic ideal of a gerrymander, it gets a little tougher to define. I mean, we were talking about California. You can also talk about Massachusetts. When you get to these states that are, you know, 60 percent, over 60 percent of 
for one party, then the metric of, you know, oh, the minority party should get X percent of the seats if they get X percent of the vote gets a little tougher to bring about in practice. I mean, Massachusetts had about a third of its voters vote for Donald Trump in 2020. They have nine congressional districts and all nine have Democratic majorities. None are particularly competitive looking. And that doesn't necessarily mean there is malfeasance in drawing these lines. It's just kind of as the state becomes more lopsided, it gets a little more difficult to draw. And, and the um, matching up proportionality, because of it's a winner-take-all system where you know each district has one representative and one winner, and you have to really kind of go out of your way as the state gets more lopsided if you want to get the minority representation. So overall partisan responsiveness is one. Uh, then you can look at competitiveness. How many districts are competitive? I think people have intuitions that if every district in a state is safe and elections are effectively pointless there, that isn't ideal. Uh, you want to have some competitiveness. The problem is that there isn't really a great standard for how many competitive districts there should be. Like, should you have one? Should you have a couple? Should you have as many as you can? It's, it's really hard to set like a clear standard for that. And it can conflict with partisan responsiveness in some ways, because if there are more competitive districts, that means that um, it's not necessarily the case that that each side will continue to get representation. Like New Hampshire is another interesting example here. There's, there's a controversy going on now. The moderate Republican governor, Sununu, is at odds with the Republican state legislature because the legislature wants to gerrymander one safe Republican seat and one safe Democratic seat. And Sununu says, uh, no, let's keep the current map, which has two lean Democratic seats because those are competitive and Republicans should be able to compete with them. And he thinks they can win them in, uh, in a competitive year. And why, you know, decree that like both seats should, should have their outcomes effectively settled in advance. But, you know, New Hampshire had like 53% of its voters vote for Biden and the rest vote for Trump. And you could also argue that doesn't that nearly half of the population that voted for Trump deserve to have a seat for themselves, uh, like permanently, not just like if they happen to get a really good year. So yeah, competitiveness is, is, is a tricky one. Or again, to kind of take it at the, you know, individual voter level, who are you willing to disenfranchise the 10 percent of swing voters who are getting districted into a safe blue or red seat where it never matters which side they're on because the seat is safe or the 45 or so 45 or more percent of voters who are always going to vote for one party or the other and whose representative is always going to be determined by the 10 percent of voters who are going to swing either way and therefore make a competitive district go red or blue depending on which way the winds are blowing. Yeah, and so you also have, you know, you can look at beyond partisan responsiveness, beyond competitiveness, there are other things that people care about. Racial representation and ethnicity, the racial makeup of a district, are there majority-minority districts? Uh, we're going to be talking about this a little more in our white paper, but that is um, is a major issue that has been important to many people for decades and then other other ways to judge it are are by the shape and just how it looks. Generally, there's a, a tradition of um, the classic gerrymanders look super weird. That's not always the best way to judge whether a gerrymander is really bad um, uh, because, you know, sometimes populations are distributed in ways that aren't really um, intuitive from looking at the map. So a weird-looking district could be fairly um, preserving a community, which is the next thing that a lot of people care about, preserving communities or communities of interest. The U.S. House of Representatives is, has a long tradition of, of geographical representation, like this is my district. I represent the people in this district. I am in touch with the community there and their interests. So, you know, some people say that, well, we should keep certain, you know, whether it is towns or neighborhoods together in certain districts and breaking up those are bad. Or it's also been called communities of interest, which could be, you know, people, um, you know, beyond general uh, race and ethnicity demographics. You could think about 
religious groups or, or so on, other other ways to um, to draw the lines to ensure that uh, a certain group is uh, represented in a district. And so all these kind of have to be balanced together, or they don't all have to, but generally the line drawers make at least some attempt to try to balance them, and there can be trade-offs between some of them and others. In practice, how much are we actually dealing with fairness as an input in here? Like, obviously, if something is tremendously racially discriminatory, there has traditionally been a litigation avenue via the Civil Rights Act for, like, striking down that map, although that, you know, relies on certain ideas of what counts as racially discriminatory. But, you know, in a process where, like, we've just spent a whole segment discussing all of the various purely partisan rationales for why you might want to draw districts a particular way? Is there anyone who's actually running, like, balancing tests on other values as part of the how should we draw these things? Or is this just something that comes into play when we're looking at a 100 percent partisan political process and saying, how well does it happen to map on to equities? I think the politicians are mainly thinking about themselves and and their party's interests. Um, The the commissions might have more um, interest in that. Apparently, the California commission this year, one of their main goals was to create more majority Hispanic districts because they thought there weren't enough of them in California. So, yeah, that can come into play. But I I think this is more standards that, that are used for judging the end products of these maps from the outside and then arguing about them later on. Another aspect of this, which is a little complicated uh, or tricky for Democrats specifically, is that um, the racial aspect of this, due to the Voting Rights Act, uh, there's a belief that having majority-minority districts is uh, is what's necessary for representation, that you need to have majority-black districts who will uh, be likely to elect majority-black representatives, same for majority-Hispanic or Latino districts, same. But there is a bit of a side effect to this, which is that the, the way this usually happens in practice is that these districts are kind of 80%, 90% black, black voters overwhelmingly vote Democratic. And so that means that effectively Democratic voters are being packed into a few of these districts rather than having their voting power spread out in other districts throughout the state. So in in that case, the racial representation goal, there can be a trade-off between that and the partisan responsiveness goal or or the the democratic party's partisan interest to and not just the democratic party's partisan is, interests but you know the prospects of these elected black representatives to actually be in the majority in the house will be affected by um if there are a bunch of majority black districts that are 80% 90% black then that would theoretically make democrats have more of a challenge to win a majority of seats in the overall state. Well, that seems like a, a decent transition into our white paper. So yes, it does. I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, Thank I'm, you, because I was trying to figure out how not <laughs> to go there. <laughs> um, so I think we're going to take one more break uh, and then come back and talk about the white paper, which delves a little bit deeper into to some of these issues with with minority representation and and partisan responsiveness. And we're back. So our white paper this week is by the late, great Harvard professor Lenny Guineer, who passed away in January. She's unfortunately probably best known for when Bill Clinton nominated her to be assistant attorney general for civil rights in 1993. And she was voted down uh, or or didn't even come to a vote, I think. Uh, She had to withdraw due to, to Republican opposition. And the phrase quota queen was used to describe her by by conservative opponents. And that's kind of a bizarre depiction of her since a lot of her work is critiquing mainstream civil rights institutions, the, the sort of most hardcore quotaists, and arguing that they kind of fail black voters and, and all voters by focusing on the wrong things. So this paper, which was published in 1991 and is called The Triumph of Tokenism, is sort of one step in that critique. So the big argument here is that the traditional approach to black representation, uh, which is using the Voting Rights Act to create majority black districts, is badly, badly flawed. Just having black representatives doesn't mean that a legislature will be responsive to black interests. And a better system that she argues for at length in the essay is just using proportional representation. Um, that if you 
provide for representation of, of minority viewpoints and not stop having winner-take-all elections. You can ensure that the substantive interests of black voters and other discrete minority groups are, are better represented. But yeah, I'm curious how you guys see this as fitting into the discussion we were just having. It seems obviously relevant to the trade-off Andrew was identifying to some degree to, between democratic self-interest and minority representation because the more you pack minority populations that vote overwhelmingly for Democrats into their own districts, that dilutes the Democratic vote overall. But she's making a, a much more nuanced case than just like, screw descriptive representation, we should only care about maximizing Democratic vote share. That's not at all what she's saying. So what did you guys make of this? I think it's it might be helpful to sort of break this up into one part about her kind of critique of the status quo and her views about minority representation and the other about just proportional representation, her proposed alternative and, and how that would work. I mean, starting from the first one, this was a very interesting paper to read from the vantage point of 2022, about 30 years later. She said there were three major problems with this system. One is that, um, you know, it it sort of romanticizes the idea that electing black representatives will fix everything for the black community, that um, in reality, it doing so has not mobilized greater social change. Uh, in what she wants is greater liberal change. And uh, so, so there's a bit of a, you know, why isn't policy moving more to the left? Maybe it's because of the way our electoral system is set up. And then, you know, she, she worried that it legitimized the majority rule system, which is kind of inherently unfair to minority groups by giving those um, minority groups like a, a share of the representative pie. And um, she was very skeptical that um, – she has a sentence representing a geographically and socially isolated constituency in a racially polarized environment. Blacks elected from single member districts have little control over policy choices made by their white counterparts. And I thought that was really interesting just because uh, the Congressional Black Caucus today is viewed as immensely important in um, the politics of the Democratic House majority. It's it's clearly no longer true that that they have no influence. Now, often that influence is um, used in a more kind of moderate direction, which uh, might vindicate another part of Guinier's critique. And, um, and I think, you know, in thinking about descriptive representation or um, – mere representation at all in Congress. I think it's also useful to remember the context with which the Voting Rights Act um, majority black uh, district strategy was kind of created. Because essentially, for most of the 20th century, um, there was no other way to get uh, black officials elected to Congress. They just could not win in any majority white districts because the white voters were too racist and would never vote for them. So there were only a handful of black members of Congress as late as the 1950s. Uh, now today, I believe there are um, 58 in the current Congress, and uh, that is uh, about 13 percent of the House of Representatives. It's about on par with the proportion of black Americans in the population. So that is the system which is mainly about having majority black districts. But also, black candidates have lately shown that they can win in other districts, in majority white districts. Barack Obama was elected president, obviously, so that's one example. But, you know, there are several. Senator Tim Scott is um, represents South Carolina. He's a Republican. There are some kind of rising star Democrats in uh, suburban white districts like um, Antonio Delgado in New York. There are even, uh, I, I believe, two now uh, black Republicans representing white districts in the House, uh, Burgess Owens of Utah and uh, Byron Donalds of Florida. So it's no longer the case that black politicians can't win majority white districts. I do think it is still tougher for them to win because you can demonstrate that by looking at the Senate and governor stats. I think there's only been, I think, two black governors elected in the United States since Reconstruction and uh, pretty much a handful of senators. I think right now there's only 
Cory Booker, Tim Scott, and uh, Raphael Warnock. So that that is still that's three out of a hundred. So that's that's significant underrepresentation. So it looks like the Voting Rights Act system was successful in increasing representation, even even uh, though the context has changed somewhat. It, it hasn't totally changed yet, but you know her critiques are, are broader than that. This is a very hard white paper to uh, summarize, much less give takeaways from, because the work Wynier is doing as like both intellectual history and philosophy is working in a lot of directions, right? It's not a theory of representation that is just like, you know, what Andrew was calling the partisan responsiveness. Like, how likely is your vote casting to determine who is going to be in office? It's also talking about politics as as a legitimacy relationship. Like, do the people who are most politically engaged, you know, or who are most engaged in improving the lot of their community feel that politics is a legitimate and successful way to get them there? It's talking about negotiations between elected officials in determining coalition priorities, as Andrew was just noting earlier. Like, there's enough going on here that it really makes it hard to give a straightforward answer to what does representation mean. And because of that, it's that much harder to say, okay, we know that these problems with single-member districts would be fixed by a given alternative. Like, the history that Guineer lays out is kind of littered with examples of Black voters complaining about alternate arrangements, which is part of how we got to the normative single-member emphasis on representation status quo. Like, in a you know, in a, in a case of a multi-member district, black voters were worried that the black representative who had been elected was more rep- responsive to his white constituents than he was to them. That's always going to be a question if you're going to do anything that is more complicated than this is the one person who you should go to with your questions. And on the flip side, everybody in this district has only you to go to if they have any problems with the system and, you know, or if they need to rely on someone important for help. So it can be very difficult to assess the what the unintended consequences of any other system would look like, given the nuance of Guineer's critique. But it does... It, it, it is a better, in, in that way, reflection of, like, how politics actually works on the ground. Like, there was very few people would have said in the last five years that the efficacy of, say, like, the Black Lives Matter movement would be determined by whether the Congressional Black Caucus endorsed everything they were doing. They're understood to be two different forms of Black politics by most people who, you know, understand how the Democratic Party and its broader coalition operate. And so thinking about political representation not just as a an arrow from vote cast to person in office really does help clarify a lot of things we're talking about when we're talking not just about representation, but about power. Yeah. I, I wanted to pick up on something Andrew was saying about the Senate, since I, I think that's not discussed much in this paper. It's not discussed much, period, just because there's like nothing to do about it. Part of the point of, of having a voting rights literature is to give people stuff to sue over or like write, write legislation about. Um, and there's nothing you can really do to change the the structure of the Senate. But friend of the show, David Shore, from time to time likes to like point out the gap between the national black population and the black population of, of the median state. So if you were going to put all 50 states in order, 50 states plus D.C., if you like, and then find the one that's absolutely at the 25th, 26th place on in terms of black population, you get Kentucky. And so the U.S. is about 12 percent black. Kentucky is about 7 percent black. So that's about five percentage points of underrepresentation roughly in, in the Senate if you're just going by, by black population because it's doing everything on a state-by-state basis and because of the sort of geographic concentration of, of black voters in cities in disproportionately larger states, you see a real big mean median uh, discrepancy there. And like, there's no lawsuit based on that. <laughs> like, you would be laughed out of the Supreme Court if you went up and said, like, the, you know, the, the U.S. Senate really violates principles of one person, one vote. Um, but it strikes me as a much bigger problem in the long run than, than the degrees of discrepancy that we see in the House. It's just less actionable, and so we talk about it less. So maybe now we should talk about the um, her solution to this um, this problem, which is to move towards a more proportional representation system. And I don't think we need to necessarily discuss her exact 
proposal, but but I do think throughout this whole discussion, I've been kind of like dancing around the fact that the current House of Representatives system is 435 single-member districts, which has the plurality winner and the runner-up or whoever the other people who don't vote for the winner vote for get no representation effectively. And so when you are trying to design fair districts, whether it is by um, by racial metrics or whether it's by partisan metrics, this presents a problem because there's really just no perfect solution to it. There's no way to guarantee proportional partisan responsiveness from certain districts who each have their own candidates. There will always be candidate-specific factors in a lot of these races as well, even though you know the divergence between House candidate performance and the president's performance has been declining lately. But really, you know, if, if you think about Massachusetts again with nine districts, a third of the population is Republican, should they get a third of the districts uh, or should they get zero districts? Uh, there's no obvious answer there, but under a proportional system, there would be. They would get about a third of the districts. And th- that would theoretically solve the gerrymandering problems in a lot of other uh, states as well that have disadvantaged Democrats. And so, you know, when we were talking about the For the People Act or the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act package, the various versions of the Democrats' voting rights proposals that have been put forward this year, they they had a proposal that would have banned partisan gerrymandering and let people sue more over it, basically. And when I was reporting on this, I heard some skepticism that that would really do the trick to guarantee kind of proportional partisan outcomes. To guarantee proportional outcomes, there's no substitute for moving to a proportional system. Like this current round of redistricting seems to have ended up in a relatively balanced place, but there was no guarantee that that would happen. So there is a lot of discussion about, well, why don't we move to a proportional system? And actually, some of the critics of that were in the Congressional Black Caucus because they feared that moving to such a system would break up their kind of very strongly majority black districts and uh, hurt community representation and um, have have all sorts of uh, negative effects for racial representation as well. So I thought it was interesting that in this paper, it's posited that proportional representation would help ensure more authentic black representatives and solve various problems affecting uh, civil rights when um, in the status quo of 2021-2022, the CBC was where a lot of the resistance to any any move towards proportional representation came from. Yeah. I I mean, I I think you, like, put your finger on the main political dynamic, which is why her view has not become the dominant view in, in civil rights organizations, is that there's some degree of, like, belief in interest alignment between sort of groups advocating for black voters and, like, actually existing black politicians. And while in some abstract sense, Guinier's proposal might be better for black voters writ large, it's probably not better for Jim Clyburn. <laughs> it's probably not better for Bobby Scott. And and so I think it's an intriguing proposal and it's probably, like, a net improvement for both the reasons she outlines and also there are other attractive qualities of, of ranked choice voting and, and proportional representation. But I don't know how you sort of advance the discussion without aligning the interests of the actual, like, group that is responsible for leading this this conversation in Congress. Well, and also, and, and Andrew, I thought this was where you were going to go earlier when you were saying that it's wild reading this from the perspective of 2022 because, like— the dynamic that she's criticizing because it had become the only viable path for ensuring the voices of black voters were heard was litigation through the Voting Rights Act specifically by using, you know, technocratic social science to demonstrate that someone's vote was being unacceptably diluted, which is exactly the sort of thing that the Supreme Court has moved away from both in narrowing litigation and in particular identifying mere like mathematical voter dilution uh, formulae as not sufficient to prove that discrimination is happening. So, you know, as long as we're talking about the kind of political realities of building a coalition that would successfully put this together, we're also in a 
situation where the thing that was hegemonic at the time of Quinier's critique has become an extremely precarious and embattled uh, way to to continue to make political change. I also think it was interesting. She she criticized the current system for not producing um, authentic uh, or authentically community tied enough black candidates and. And I actually kind of think that the, you know, if you look at the members of Congress right now, there are many members of the CBC who represent urban majority black districts who who came from those districts and are clearly kind of in touch with and of those districts um, in a way that other politicians might not be. I mean, they're not like Ivy educated achievers from the corporate world who've gotten rich and, you know, are going back home. Like th- these are people who have worked in these communities for many years and and are not, you know, cut from the same cloth as as perhaps like the modern educated extremely liberal democrat. And you know, I think one argument in this paper was she wanted policy to b- move more to the left, but what we are often seeing from, you know, there there's a range of views obviously, but Clyburn has been a more moderate force in the current Congress. Uh, Cory Bush, uh, just elected from Missouri, is is very progressive and uh, pushing, trying to push the caucus to the left. And and I think that's as it should be. There's a range of views. I, I don't think that necessarily, um, you know, the, the current system has led to inauthentic uh, black representatives. Not that I would be in any way qualified to judge that. But th- that, I think, was behind part of the fear from some of those representatives about moving to a proportional system. If representatives are more elected based off, you know, a statewide list of candidates where um, if if you win 40% of the votes or whatever, then you get 40% of the seats and your members off of your list get those seats and they're less tied to geographies and communities, then you really might get less of that um, specific representation if you think that is an important priority. All right. I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much to Andrew and to Dara for, for being with us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. To find out what Dara will be writing about this week, go to vox.com slash newsletter <laughs> to sign up. <laughs> we will be back in your feeds next Tuesday with another panel episode. We will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, More than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.